very shortly after that was on a, a, a cocaine binge at my house and I laid in bed and my heart was ringing and I'd probably done an entire eight ball to myself. And I was just kind of, I thought maybe this was just going to be the end of it for me. I was actually terrified. I was really terrified to even lay there. I had realized that I had let these substances overcome me. Um, you know, I grew up with good morals and all of a sudden I was a junkie in that respect. You know, not obviously as, as much of a junkie as, as some other people, but in my world that was, it was devastating to look at myself and see that I had gone there. Holix.com in partnership with Heart Support and the Global Recovery Initiatives Foundation is proud to present High Notes, a podcast about addiction and recovery in the music industry. I'm your host, James Shotwell. My guest today is Heidi Shepard. Heidi is the co-vocalist and co-founding member of Butcher Babies, one of America's premier hard rock bands. The group's latest single, Last Dance, is available now on all streaming platforms. Heidi is one of the most recognizable people in hard rock, but many fans still don't know her story. Today, she's going to tell us about her previous cocaine use and how it almost led her down a dangerous path. But thankfully, she found her band, and in doing so, forged a community that has taken the world by storm. But my first question is just how long she's been sober. Well, I have been sober from hard drugs (laughs) 12 years now. The thing is, is like, uh, there was a time in my life where cocaine really took over and it became my life. What saved me really was my band and my dedication to actually trying to sound good (laughs) in the band. But, you know, I'll enjoy a cocktail every now and again, but it's not something that dominates my life like it did in the past. So I, I guess you could say I'm not fully sober in that respect. However, you know, hard drugs are not a part of my life. I don't even smoke marijuana. So um, I'll just enjoy a cocktail every now and again. I want to make it clear from the jump that this is perfectly acceptable. We at High Notes preach moderation as much as we do sobriety. As we've said before, and we will no doubt say again, everyone reacts to things differently. One drink in moderation may be fine for some people, but for others, it is the start of a slippery slope, and knowing what's right for you is what matters most. I asked Heidi if she would take me back to the beginning of her story so that we could learn how cocaine became a part of her life. Well, I grew up Mormon, and so drinking was against the religion I grew up in, so I didn't even touch alcohol till I was 22 years old and done with school. And... It was just, you know, I, I left the the religion that I was in and I was like, I'm going to explore life. And I did. <laughs> I went a little too ham, I guess. But, you know, I look back at it now and it was all lessons that I needed to learn at the time. Um, I didn't get those rebellious teenage years, I guess, that some people may have. And so I just explored in my early 20s. And I'm sure that a lot of people can attest to that as well. I moved to Los Angeles uh, around 22. And I, I kind of just fell into an interesting crowd. I used to go to clubs with 
Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian and all that way back in the day when, you know, Tara Reid was there. It was just a big party situation. And I remember sitting at a table and I was past strawberry flavored cocaine. Bizarre, right? <laughs> Lifestyles of the rich and the famous, I guess. And I was just, I was there to try everything and just do everything. I started going to raves and I fell deep into ecstasy. And the problem with ecstasy is that it it depletes all of your serotonin. And you, even if you try to get high and you take the drugs the next day, your body hasn't replenished that serotonin. So I would just try it. Even if the pills weren't going to work, I was just still going to try it. Just try and get, get that going for me. And I remember sitting at an after party and everyone was just high out of their minds. And this was after a rave and a kid next to me, he had this giant mohawk and he did a, um, a shot of NOS, I think is what it was. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And he completely passed out. I, I thought he died. And I looked around me and it was almost a snap back to reality. I looked around and I was just around a bunch of, you know, drug addict deadbeats there. It was light outside, but they had movie theater curtains covering the windows. I looked around and I thought, I can't believe this is my life. What have I let this come to? It was kind of in that moment where I just decided I didn't want to do ecstasy anymore. I felt dumb. Every single day I felt like I was becoming <laughs> dumb and dumber. <laughs> and it just was, it was kind of a wake up call seeing that kid next to me, which I thought he was dying, but he had just passed out and came to very shortly after that was on a, a, a cocaine binge at my house and I laid in bed and my heart was ringing and I'd probably done an entire eight ball to myself. And I was just kind of, I thought maybe this was just going to be the end of it for me. I was actually terrified. I was really terrified to even lay there. I had realized that I had let these substances overcome me. Um, you know, I grew up with good morals and all of a sudden I was a junkie in that respect, you know, not obviously as, as much of a junkie as, as some other people, but in my world, that was, it was devastating to look at myself and see that I had gone there, you know, as the band started to take off and started to do better, I, I couldn't do uh, some, some cocaine and, and sing correctly. It just, it didn't, it didn't uh, serve me. And as I stated, yeah, the, it did kind of uh, save me in a way to be like, okay, this is the final straw. This is the thing that's really going to kick this habit off for me. I stopped doing that before I, we even did our first tour. Um, I stopped doing it because I knew that it was going to ruin this beautiful dream that I had been dreaming of my entire life, my whole life. I wanted to do what I'm doing right now. And I just, I knew that I would be ruining myself over a substance. And, uh, you know, the, my band members and everything that everyone was really supportive in, uh, you know, this not being a habit, obviously. So, um, I'm very lucky that I had the support of of my friends in that as well. Heidi has already told us about what happened in her life immediately before she chose to get clean. 
but I wanted to know about the circle of people she ran with. Were other people in her life concerned? Had anyone asked her whether or not she thought about quitting before that moment? Were there people rooting for her that she would make the decision to get sober on her own time? That's that's a thing either. Like um, a lot of people didn't know that it was as bad as it was. And also I one of my best friends at the time, her her boyfriend was my drug dealer. <laughs> so, you know, that was a group of friends that I was with all the time and they were uh it was just easy, easy to get, always around. It wasn't until you know, one of my friends had a really bad trip and she called me and she was in her garage and describing the craziest shit to me. And I was like, wow, is that me? Do I do, do I do this? And then her, her parents actually had an intervention with her. It kind of, they wanted me to come be a part of the intervention. And I, I was like, I can't because I'm part of the group that does this together. But that kind of, I guess in a way, her intervention kind of leaked over to me a little bit where I was like, wow, you know, people's family, they, they really care about her and I care about her too. And people care about me and I need to kind of, you know, pull myself out of this. But, um, but the, I didn't have anybody saying, hey, you need to get a hold of yourself. I, I was the kind of, I was the kind of, uh, <laughs> cocaine person who would get an eight ball and do it in my room by myself. So a lot of people didn't know. This is one of the problems with keeping people away from drugs like cocaine. Movies make cocaine seem fun. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, while it is undeniably dark, is a wild ride of a movie. But for a lot of people, like Heidi right here in this story, being on cocaine just means sitting alone in a room trying to get your mind to stop racing at a million miles per hour. Yeah. And, and that's kind of, you're absolutely right about that. People don't understand. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, more of a, a, a pleasure to sit in your room and stare at the wall <laughs> rather than out in the club. Mm's, mm's, mm's. Of course I did that as well, but, but it got really bad when I was doing it by myself in my room. Thankfully, Heidi found the strength to pull herself out of this situation and make a change. So I wanted to know who she told. Who was the first person she talked to about her feelings and how did they react? Carla, the, the other um, vocalist in my band, she and I, you know, we became such best friends right off the bat when we met. And it was because she used to have an issue with it. And I used to have, you know, I, I was having an issue when we became friends. And um, I, I told her about it. And she explained, you know, some of her, her situations and her experiences to me. And we kind of, you know, talking about it with her definitely helped normalize it and be like, okay, this is something that I can overcome easily. You know, and and I'm not saying it's an easy thing for most people, but when I had the the push and the support of my bandmates, it became a lot easier. That's for sure. But I would say she was probably the first I talked to, and then I also talked to my little sister about it too because I wanted her to kind of learn from my experience, I guess, in a way, you know, I tried and, and she was very 
uh, just lent out a helping hand and just always like, how are you? How are you? Let's talk about this. And so I would say Carla and my sister. Many of you listening may already be familiar with Butcher Babies, the band that Heidi and Carla front. But I wanted her to give us the backstory for everyone else. You know, I I felt comfort because she was my best friend. But we, how we met was really interesting. I I was in a cover band, and there were five girls in the band, and one of the girls was doing heroin, and we were like, well, we could do cocaine, but you can't do heroin. <laughs> so we kicked her out of the band, and um, we put up a MySpace ad, and Carla. Uh, she answered the MySpace ad and came and tried out for the band and she made it. And um, I was introducing her to the songs that we would do and the parts that each girl would take. And she, we spent a lot of time together in that respect. And um, with that connection and talking about our hopes and dreams of being in a big band someday and our love of heavy metal, I just felt like I, she was a kindred spirit. She was a lot like me and I could open up to, to her about these things. And I think that that has really resonated throughout our entire career. And you, you know, we are so close and we do know everything about each other. And when I slip up on anything, whether, whether it's like a bad attitude or whatever, you know, she's there to check me and vice versa. And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, starting our friendship with that type of honesty was really was really helpful for us in, in our journey together. We've heard countless stories from artists who were struggling with addiction before they were popular, only to find that with notoriety came the ability to access anything they desired, which in turn only made their pre-existing problems worse. But Butcher Babies are a different story entirely. Together, Heidi and Carla were able to clean up their lives in the early days of the group, making it possible for the band to thrive without worries of falling into old behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's so funny because um, when Carla and I, I, when we, you know, are together, we'll have, you know, a glass of wine together and that's easy. And it's just, it's, we can talk about everything and it's really it's just, it's nice to have that camaraderie where it's just, we know that we don't do these things and we don't need them in our lives. And we will always have each other to back each other up in that. And um, yeah, I do feel grateful for that. It's been, it's been so long. <laughs> it's been so long. I, I can't even imagine that coming up in like a conversation, like, Hey, let's do some cocaine. I wouldn't, that would never, <laughs> it's so weird <laughs> to even think about. Heidi is absolutely correct. The further along you get in recovery, the harder it is to recognize yourself before you got sober. But during those early tours, it wasn't so easy. Temptation was high and resistance was hard. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it is everywhere. <laughs> and um, even still, you know, people will offer it to us all the time. Carl and I were at, uh, well, the band had just finished our set. We were in Manchester playing a show. Um, one of the guys who ran the club was like, do you guys want to do some DMT? I'll take you guys to your place. And then, you know, I'm like, we're like, no, it, this kind of stuff happens all the time. And, you know, there are 
of course, when we first started there, we're definitely, it's not as prevalent now. And especially a lot of people know that we don't do that, but in the beginning, you're right. It was a little bit more prevalent. People were, Hey, you want to do this with us? Hey, let's get a rock star in here, you know? And we did have to lean on each other to be like, no, we're not going to do that. We have, we have a, you know, we have our voices to save. Uh, we, we don't even drink whiskey on the road (laughs) because, because it hurts our throats or wine on the road because it hurts our voices. So we're very, very particular in what we put in our bodies and that, you know, early on, of course, people were just like, here you go. But I think as time has gone on, uh, I think that it's not cool in our industry to be a druggie. It's not cool to be blown out of your mind. It's not something like the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. It doesn't really exist as much as it used to. Even from what I've seen in the last you know decade plus in this band, there has been a giant shift where now it's more like yoga and green tea. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I am grateful for that too. I'm grateful for that shift. Speaking from experience, when you first start touring, there's a part of you that hopes to live the rock star dream. If you're somebody that partakes in drugs and alcohol, then you hope to have one of those nights you read about in the dirt or saw in a VH1 behind the music episode. But if you're able and lucky enough to survive several years in music, your conversations and behaviors shift. You stop looking forward to the party after the show And you just look forward to the hang, to being around your friends and talking about real life situations like insurance and how their kids are doing in school. Yes. No, I know. And that's exactly it's how it is now. And, you know, I think a lot of that, too, is we're all kind of just getting older and there are younger bands. And maybe I just don't know. Maybe I'm blind to it because I, I just don't see it and people don't present it around me now. But I really think that in this industry, it's changed quite a bit. I think it's just it's it's more respectful to be a, um, a sober uh, musician than a train wreck, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I don't drink before shows. I don't. Um, yeah, to me, any sort of inebriation on stage, I, I wouldn't be able to jump off boxes. <laughs> you know, I, how would I land a jump <laughs> if I were if I were even slightly drunk? Um, so, it, yeah, just my whole band, we play sober. And um, and I, I'm grateful that everyone in my band is as uh, as good as they are <laughs> when it comes to substances. Knowing how well Heidi's recovery is going. I was curious to learn about any temptations or cravings she may experience in regards to her past behavior. I think a craving, that's the hard part is it rarely really leaves. Um, Like I can, like if I just think about it, I could taste cocaine in my mouth right now. (laughs) You know, I can taste how it feels in the back of my throat, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean that I want it. I have not been presented with it in a really long time. It has not been around me in a really, really long time. The friends that I surround myself with are all on the same page as I am. I'd say probably, I think the last time I was offered on tour even was like in 2015 or something like that, but not something I obviously partook in. Yeah. I mean, craving wise, like I said, I think that that's part of what (laughs) an addict is like you are you always crave it 
but the strength comes from not doing it. So even though I might crave it, you know, I'm still not going to do it. Um, but I think that that's kind of how it's, it is with me, you know, (laughs) I liked the smell of cocaine back in the day, (laughs) but, but, uh, it, you know, it's, it, that doesn't mean that it's, uh, you know, going to ever be a part of my life again, because I don't like what it does to me. That last part is so important because as anyone in recovery will tell you, their brain still knows the way to get high. If you allow yourself to think about it, your brain will paint you a map to figure out how to get a fix. You know who to call, where to go, where to look, how much it'll cost, and how soon you can get it. But the key is playing it out. Asking yourself what happens after. If you decide to drink or get high, then what? Is it worth it? And the answer most likely is no. Well, and also, you know, like I do, I I have friends that had the, you know, the same experiences that I had. Um, And I have friends that are freshly sober and try not to partake. And so um, even if it comes up in like conversation, it's just an automatic, nope, nope. Cause I need to be, I need to, I need to be that good friend for somebody else too. I need to be that, that good example for, you know, the freshly, freshly sober friends that we may have. One theme that comes up again and again in Heidi's story is the power of community from the people that she knew early in life who didn't really have her best interest at heart to finding Carla and the rest of the butcher babies and finding a place that felt like home and other people. Heidi has always relied on the community around her to support her, and now she's in a good place because of that. You get the sense that if someone did want to try and tempt her with drugs and alcohol, they wouldn't be able to get close. And even if they could... Yeah, that, they, they would know they wouldn't be able to, even if they tried. <laughs> it's just, it's not worth it to me, you know? And, and, and like I said at the beginning, you know, where the band really did save me, there were other things too. Like I was... I was anorexic bulimic. I did lots of cocaine. I was, I was a mess. And when this band started in order for me to feel strong on stage, in order for my voice to be strong, in order to be able to perform at all, I had to kick everything. And so it wasn't just, you know, one thing, it was a lot of bad habits to the door. And so I, I, you know, I'm not about to open one of those doors and maybe let in a couple other demons with it. So it's just, you know, my friends know that about me and they know how, how to respect that. And they know how hard it was for me at the time. If you've ever seen a promotional photo of butcher babies, then you've most likely seen Heidi and Carla looking like strong, badass warrior women, which is what they are. But all too often, a band with a name like Butcher Babies gets written off as being another heavy or tough act that's trying to teach other people to be tough and heavy, which is true to some extent. The band does want you to face your challenges and overcome the things that stand in your way. But the real message and purpose of Butcher Babies is so much more. It's so much bigger and more meaningful. It's something that no photo could possibly convey. I traded all that in for lifting, so... (laughs) I'm just kidding. No, um, we won't kill anybody. I know that we have this rough exterior. People look at us and then they think like, what are, what are they really about? And who are they for real? And, you know, the, our music is a character, you know, and, and we live lives just like everybody else. We, we go through all the same things that everyone else has. We have all the same nightmares, the same dreams, the same, 
um, you know, we all do the same thing in the morning. <laughs> and it's just, um, you know, being, you know, in butcher babies and people I've had, you know, rumors circulating around that we were cokeheads on tour and all that stuff too. And I'm like, if people have even understood how hard it was to kick that shit before we started touring, they would never say something like that. And I'm sure Carla will explain to you as well about, cause she wrote a book about, about the problems, um, and her, her trials with it. And, um, you know, you know, we we had to really kind of check ourselves and like we said in the beginning and i'm i'm glad that people kind of look at us like we might kill somebody but you know we're just nice chicks as my time with heidi came to a close i couldn't help asking her one last question we don't believe in giving advice at high notes we feel that we cannot give you proper advice because we don't know your full story we don't know where you come from we don't know the motivating factors in your life but we do know that the power of suggestion is strong so I asked Heidi, when somebody comes to her and says, I've heard your story, I've read the books, I've heard the music, how can I change my life? When that happens, what will Heidi suggest? You know, it's really interesting you bring that up because um, when, you know, Butcher Baby started and all the other stuff was going on in my life, I noticed that I was starting to become a little bit of a role model for other people. And so I forced myself and I realized that I needed to start living my life in a more positive way, you know, even down to the language I use. And, you know, if people asked, what do I need to do to be more like butcher babies? I would probably say, just be nice. <laughs> I don't know. Be nice. Be nice to people. Smile. Uh, that's something that I'll, over the years, and you've seen our show. But um, back in the day, I was, you know, angry. I was an angry kid on stage, and I think all my issues leading up to um, all my demons <laughs> gave into that anger, and you could see it on my face on stage. And now you see me smile on stage, and I think that that uh, radiates throughout the entire show. Um, you know, I, I've often said like, when I get on stage, I'm just a vessel of positive energy back and forth. And that's all I want to be. And so if, you know, if, if I could you know, say to somebody how to live life a little bit more positively, just to smile a little bit more, smile at other people, you'll get a smile back. I know it's hard with our masks on in this day and age, but, um, but it really does help. It, it puts me in a better mood, puts other people in a better mood, um, and all around just brings more kindness into your life. And so I would hope that that would be something that would come out of my mouth <laughs> if someone asked me that. <laughs> if you only take one thing away from this episode of High Notes, I hope it's the need to surround yourself with people that are good for your soul. Picture yourself like a seed. And the people that you surround yourself with are the soil, water, and sunlight that will play roles in helping you develop. Now, the people that you choose will have an impact on how big you grow to be, whether you stay in the dirt as a seedling that could have been, or you flourish and become a gigantic tree. And that's what I want for you, to find your circle, to grow, and become the big, beautiful person you were meant to be. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, please seek help. The entire High Notes team is here and we can provide resources for you that will put you on the path to recovery. As always, for High Notes, my name is James Shotwell. The show is brought to you by Holix.com. Our producer is Landon DeFever. 
Our programming consultant is Laura Haggard. The theme song was written by the band You, Me, and Everyone We Know, and the art was created by the great Nick Farron. High Notes is available on all streaming platforms. If you would like to connect with us on social media, try Instagram and Twitter. Just search High Notes Pod. That's High Notes P-O-D. We are always working on new episodes, so expect to hear from us soon. Until then, please take care of yourself. You deserve it.